I'd like to say a few words about the idea of the past and ethical remembrance. If as a citizen you aspire to and work to affirm ideals of forgiveness, reconciliation, harmony, equality, justice, inclusiveness, and a generalized orientation to a common good, then collective acts of remembrance of an ethical kind will appeal to you. To understand why and how ethical memorialization impacts our commemorative thinking about the War of Independence and the Irish Civil War, we need, as the President argues, to frame our thinking about these acts more critically than perhaps we've been accustomed to. My colleagues, as historians, will contextualize the particular details of those momentous events for this island. These last centenaries of our decade of centenaries are especially difficult, precisely because of the kinds of division that the events of those few years seared into the structures of Irish political and civic life for the last hundred years. Cleavages within the Republic, fractures within Northern Ireland, ruptures between the Republic and Northern Ireland, and between both and Great Britain. What I want to outline as footnotes to the President's call are some general philosophical and psychological contexts for the ethics and for the practice of memory. For brevity's sake, I rely on an argument for an ethics of memory from the Israeli philosopher, Avishai Margulit. Margulit writes against the backdrop of remembering that most extreme example of historical evil, still within living memory, the Holocaust. Tested against this extreme, his case for ethical memory, I think, fits our present purpose. This period of commemoration is an opportunity to reflect on where, as a state, we have come from, and indeed, had things been different, where we might have gone. Two strands fabricate the past for us, history and memory. In critical history, colder and more detached as Margulat sees it, there is no backward causality. We cannot affect the past or revivify the past. Only descriptions of the past can be altered, improved or animated. In sharp contrast, memory in the form of stories about the past that are shared by a community are as a rule more vivid, more concrete and better connected with live experiences than is critical history. So how should we understand the past? Let's take a brief detour through the findings of contemporary psychology before returning to this idea of commemoration viewed through the lens of ethical memory. Our ideas about the past, about time and memory, shape our assumptions and prime our expectations of what is possible to change in our relationship to the past. Reflections on the idea of the past challenge our common sense notions of time. Here are some questions, the answers to which prompt both caution and optimism. Is the past in the past? Or should we think of the past as having a future? The eminent German historian Reinhard Koselleck titled his magnum opus, Futures Past. Here I would like to briefly reflect on the idea of the past's future. Can we anticipate our past? Concepts of time are central to how we order our experience, both personally and collectively. 
But concepts of time vary greatly from one historical period to another, from one culture to another, from one language to another, from one discipline to another. In our everyday language, we actually think of time spatially. The present is here, the past is behind, and the future is in front. In other words, we think of time using the metaphor of space. And this allows us to think of time as being short or long, and of events as receding from us or as approaching towards us. The point here is that our ideas of the past and our metrics for temporally ordering those remembered or recalled events and experiences, such as clock time, are constantly open to change and revision. Consequently, the past is constantly open to change and revision, be it personally remembered or historically constructed. The more we learn from newly discovered materials in archives or letters, the more we can anticipate changes in the past. Just as the more we create new frameworks of understanding and attend to newly noticed domains of neglect in an existing canon, the more, that is, the past can be reinterpreted and reconfigured. To say that the past arises from the present is not in any way to deny cause and effect in the enrolling of events that have run their course. It is to emphasize that the past is a set of ideas whose use depends on memories and imaginings that function in the present and that reflect the concerns of the present. For the issue of commemorations then, we should pay detailed attention to the demands and dynamics of our present time in order to decide upon the purposes of historical remembrance. A key point is this, as the Northern Irish writer and poet Gerald Daw has pointed out. In our present reflections, one of the things we know is the outcome of the past. Their past as it was, with its options and scope for decisions then, is not our past as it is. Daw can later ask how a common past can now be achieved or even remembered. And he goes on to say that the past is not an ethereal thing, but it is contained in things and actions. So we have here again the idea of a commonly agreed past being formed as an ambition, as a future goal. Seamus Heaney wrote of the past as the ghost life that hovers over the furniture of our lives, where to an imaginative person, such furniture becomes a point of entry into a common emotional ground of memory and belonging. Daw and Heaney are not in disagreement in their respective uses of the words not ethereal and ghost life in describing our senses of the past. Modern psychology and neuroscience confirms that when we remember, whether individually or arguably collectively, we do not retrieve some fixed and immutable trace. We constantly reconstruct and reimagine subject to present demands. The past is endlessly edited and re-edited. If the past is what is remembered, what can we say about the kinds of way there are of remembering? This is a vast and ever-expanding field of study, so let me abstract just a few ideas of relevance. There are many kinds of memory. Two of the most important are the ways in which we can each time travel back to episodes in our own past. That's called episodic memory and the ways in which we can recall what we know, that's semantic memory. 
If episodic memory is a unique, a unique capacity of humans, it also lasts only as long as the human is alive. Each kind of memory conjures its own sense of time and of its past, and each nourishes the other. If episodic memories are what make witnesses, they also die with those witnesses. Insofar they are, as they are part of collective memory, their lifespan is about two generations. And what they then are, as historians like Jay Winter remind us, are memories of memories, or post-memories. Some scholars would prefer the term distributive memory to that of collective memory. But it is another kind of memory that seems particularly important at the present time, and that is emotional memory, and especially negative emotional memories, which we know play an outsized role compared to positive emotional memories in our lives. Whatever kinds of positive emotions of pride and admiration there might be in nationalistic opposition to imperialist or colonialist ideas, the kinds of negative emotion that attach to the fratricidal, fratricidal divisions of the Civil War are of a different order. Bitterness, resentment, humiliation, irreconcilability. One concept mentioned by the President, that of reprisal, which is a species of collective revenge, lies at the heart of some of the most egregious events of that time. Bloody Sunday, the assassinations, the 81 official executions of Republican prisoners, Balisidi. The question, how could they, transmuted into a more enduring and troublesome question. How could we? As Margaret points out, it is caring that marks out what is important to us. And caring is emotional. Emotional memories are strong determinants of adversarial allegiances and identities, of who we are and of who we are not, of who is with us and of who is against us, and indeed of the kind of person or society that we must not become. The simple everyday phrase, I regard that as history now, as Michael Fitzgerald QC recently said concerning the killing of his uncle on the morning of November the 21st, 1920, by Michael Collins' squad, that is a discursive indication of the limits of emotional memory. So what are the purposes and uses of memory, individual or collective? Memory is fundamentally prospective. It supplies what we need to imagine what is to come, to imagine what ought to come, and to imagine what, if at all possible, should not come to be. A difference between history and collective memory is the difference between arguments and chronicles. Each feeds the construction of identities. These involve choices, and memory informs decision-making. Memory guides the construction of possible futures, and insofar as these futures concern those with whom we are most connected, our families, friends, comrades, fellow citizens, fellow members of commonly imagined communities, and so on, then we are in the realm of ethical memory, as argued by Margaret and by the President. Given the malleability of the past, its openness to review and to reinterpretation, its imaginary scene setting, its changing potency over historical timescales, its transmissibility in object and action. There is for us now a great opportunity to deliberately shape our own responses to the foundational events of modern Ireland. Our acts of remembrance can become, without denial, distortion or suppression, 
instruments for a more ethically oriented Ireland, one that is open to difference and to conviviality in the best sense of that word. Here are Margulis' conclusions about ethical memory. Slightly tongue-in-cheek, he observes that a nation has famously been defined as a society that nourishes a common delusion about its ancestry and shares a common hatred for its neighbours. Thus, the bond of caring in a nation hinges on false memory, delusion, and hatred of those who do not belong. His concern is to diminish the extent to which wounding emotions, the scars of painful memory, can motivate political action. By contrast, what binds an ethical community together are positive emotional bonds. These may be forged in the solidarity of testing times and indeed in hostility towards a common enemy, but the sense of solidarity is crucial. Our knowledge of the past is rooted in credible witnessing, in a hierarchy of those we trust. Margaret goes on to argue that the case for the redemptive power of forgiveness, but of a forgiveness, he, he goes on to argue the case for, a, for the redemptive, redemptive power of forgiveness, but of a forgiveness that is based on disregarding the sin rather than forgetting it. Here, the idea of disregarding and of forgiveness is of both as voluntary actions and chosen policy. He offers the idea of remorse as a non-magical way of undoing the past by changing our interpretation of that past. Remorse empowers forgiveness. Here I'm reminded of that letter in 1970 from the Commandant of Beggars Bush Barracks, uh, Sean Kerwin, which Anne Dolan uses to such powerful effect in her book commemorating the Irish Civil War. Irwin was charged with executing his former comrades. All those years later, in 1970, his anguish and anger as the mandated executioner carrying out the orders of the new state is still poignantly raw. And I quote, it is impossible to describe the harrowing and the anguish of the soul of having to see one-time comrades in arms brought out and shot to death by a firing squad and to be aware that these men did not really know what it was all about. What would a fine commemoration of genuine political remorse look like? It would, I think, involve a commitment never to act like that again. But more importantly, it would commit to generalise that remorse to a universal norm, such that the nation as a whole would politically support international agreements and conventions that would outlaw all such actions. As, by example, signing the 1949 Geneva Conventions regarding the treatment of prisoners. This is Kant's categorical imperative collectively obeyed. Act only according to that maxim by which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. Perhaps the strongest reason for forgiveness is this, that those who find themselves in the position to forgive are also the beneficiaries of the act, since feelings of resentment coupled with desires for revenge poison those who hold them. And here's a wish from Gerald Daw in 2004, and I quote, maybe from these hidden, uncanonical sources, a common culture will emerge or resurface, out of which the next generation can mine diversity of background as a bulwark against deadly and deadening division and not the other way around. And here is a question for now. Should our commemorative projects not aspire to become what Heaney called points of entry 
into a common emotional ground of memory and belonging. This, as I understand it, is what the President is arguing for. Thank you.